appreciate that everybody is here. Uh, the past few weeks, we have been going through a, a series called Covenant Questions. We've been discussing four questions. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? And what's my response? And these are pretty much age-old questions. They're questions that people have been asking since the beginning of time, because we want to know, we want to have purpose, we want to know why we're here and what's going on. So where we have been thus far, we talked about who God was. We looked back at five Old Testament covenants, and we looked in them and we say, okay, God has come to Israel. He initiated these things. This was the best part. He initiated these covenants, and he said, this is who I am. And every one of them, he starts by telling Israel, either Adam or Noah or Abraham or Moses or David, this is who I am. And then he moves from there and he establishes who he is and says, but this is what I have done for you. And he lays down that groundwork. And then after laying that groundwork says, this is who you are in light of me. So the first two weeks, we talked about who God was. We talked about what he had done and that uh, through the work of Jesus, as an extension of his character, God being faithful, making these covenants, saying, I will be with you, I will be for you, I will continue to be faithful to my covenant. He then says, and now I'm going to act on it. I am going to go forth and I am going to send my son so that we actually have a way because in the old covenant, God made them a way and they rejected it. They didn't follow the covenant. They needed to be righteous. They needed to be obedient. And they said, forget that. We don't want that. And through Jesus, he gave us a new chance. Now, last week we talked about who am I? Who am I? And we established by looking back at the very first covenant between Adam and Eve and God, that he had reached out to them. He had loved them. He had given them everything that they needed to live to survive beyond survival, to thrive, to live well. And they rejected it. They tried to take God's throne. They tried to take the throne. They tried to be God. God had to kick them out of the garden. And then sin entered the world. Brokenness was a part of everything now. We couldn't make our relationship right with God. There was something separating us. Enter Jesus. Jesus came. He made a new way. And he didn't just come to take our sin because sin was in the world. And it's like, ah, oh, you need to get ta- taken, that taken care of. We'll wipe that away. Moving on. No. He came and he reformed our identities. He gave us an opportunity to have our identities restored so that we would go from broken, busted enemies of the king to now being free, to being full of life and being children of God. That's a really big difference from going from the outside of the castle walls, attacking the castle, to being pulled into the throne room, given a crown and saying, you are an heir to the throne. This is what Jesus has done in us. Now, I do have to take a quick detour. Because last week's sermon, after I preached it, I felt uncomfortable. There was something that wasn't sitting right within me. And I was like, I think I may have asserted something that wasn't textually accurate. And so I called my friend Rosh 
who I made mention of last week in the sermon, and I talked with him, and I, he's a pastor in Michigan, and I said, okay, here's what I said. I don't feel right about it. Talk with me through this text in Galatians chapter 3, 23 through 29. And after reading it, what I said last week is that Moses, went, or rather Paul, when writing to the Galatians, was writing to a Gentile audience, and when he references the law, he was referencing the first law, the one that he made between Adam and Eve that was common for all of time. And I even said last week, when you are in the Bible and it references the law, it's almost always the Mosaic law, but not this time. I was wrong. In fact, it is every time. And in fact, it was not a Gentile audience. It was the Jews that Paul was writing to in this church. There was infighting between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews said, hey, you Gentiles, you need to be like us. You need to take on our ways. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow all of our religious laws. And then you will be real Christians. So what they were doing, they were taking Jesus and adding the law. Uh, A professor has told me once, definition of heresy is Jesus and. Jesus and. If you are adding anything to Jesus as a part of salvation, that is heresy. And so these people were being heretical and it was in the church and it was causing fighting. What happened is when I gave the interpretation I did last week, I robbed the text of its power. In fact, this little text that we read last week that was establishing our identity as one being in Christ, not fighting between Jew and Gentile, male and female, it was actually a text to fight racism. It was a text to fight legalism. And when I took the interpretation I did, I didn't give it the oomph it needed. So my apologies to you all. Uh, Your preacher is flawed. Very sorry. So I wanted to correct that because that's a really critical thing moving forward. Now, where I ended, which is saying that our identity is one that is secure in Christ. It is new in Christ. We are free in him, and now we find our identity securely in him. That was the right place to land. That was in the text, so uh, I didn't mislead us there. Uh, But I wanted us to be very clear about what our new identity is as we move forward to this week answering the question, so what do I do? What do I do? Uh, So I want to start, and I want to put a pin in where we hope to finish. Okay, so this is answering the quick question, what do I do? Uh, So open up your Bibles. It'll be on the screen as well. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. My friend Sarah will hop up and get it to you. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can consider the one that she gives you, our gift to you. We are going to be in Romans chapter 6. That's about page 942 in the Bible. If you have one of these cool ESV Bibles, like the one Sarah can hand out. Chapter 6, starting in verse 12. We're going to do 12 to 14, and then I'll do 17 to 18. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So even in these three verses, uh, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live righteously. That's what we're supposed to do, live righteously. Verses 17 and 18 But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient 
from the heart. You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness, servants of righteousness, that God has given us that and that's what we are committed to. Here's the funny thing. Does it, having been set free from sin, this is a fact. It has happened. We're talking about identity. We have been set free from sin. This is a point. It has occurred. We are no longer slaves to it, but are free. We are to live under grace, as it says in verse 14. The law will not have dominion over us. We are not under the law, but we are under grace. So that is the very quick answer. What am I to do? Well, we're supposed to live under grace. That's nice and all, but why can't we get there consistently? You know, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but if I said show of hands people who have a hard time living like they want to, pretty sure it'd be consistent hands up all around the room. I know mine's real high. it's difficult to live as I know I think I'm supposed to live. So why can't we get there? Our aim is off. Our aim is off. We aren't sure why we should have that goal and we aren't certain how to get there. I contend that there are those three things. Our aim is off. We aren't sure how to get there and we're not really sure why or we don't consistently remember why. So today we're going to deal with each of those. Let's start with our aim. Going back to the Old Testament covenants, if in your Bible now, you'll flip towards the other end. Let's go to Joshua chapter 24. Towards the front, page 198. As you are en route there, uh, this wasn't one of the five covenants that I mentioned that God made. Uh, this was actually just a covenant renewal. So, God has given the law to the Israelites and Joshua is calling them to remember it. He's calling them back to it. So if you look at chapter 24, uh, verses 2 all the way to 13 are the answers to the question, who is God and what has he done? Joshua is, is quoting God. So he is speaking for God. He is the mouthpiece for him. And he's saying, essentially, God's saying, this is who I am. I am your greatest defender. I am your greatest protector. I have gone before you. I have given you the land that you were promised. I've given it to you. And now you are here. You are in the land. You have taken it. Okay, so now what? Verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, I know it's corny, but who cares? You need to ask, why is the therefore therefore? Okay, why is the therefore therefore? So when you see a therefore, it is referencing everything that has just been stated. Uh, You can treat it as a since. Well, since this has occurred, now this So Joshua is building, well, God, through this statement, is building on all the previous statements of who he was and what he has done. In light of who he is and what he's done, now, what do you do? Verse 14, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. 
And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, this is Joshua talking, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then there's this hilarious discussion that happens. Uh, they, they give them the law. And all the people of Israel say, yes, Joshua, we will follow the law. We, we hear you, man. We got you. We're good. Yes, we will follow the law. And Joshua said, you all are full of it. No, you won't. You're not going to follow the law. I'm calling you to follow it, and I already know you're going to fall flat on your face. And Israel, full of vigor and excitement and emotion in the moment, says, no, we'll be fine. We'll do it. We promise we will do it. And Joshua says, fine. (laughs) Verse 23. Oh, really? You're going to do it? Are you actually going to do it? Then put away the foreign gods that are among you. Again, you haven't done it yet. Why do you think you're going to do it now? Put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Incline your heart. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. And so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. That's where they worshiped. That's where all people came frequently. Uh, It was visible. It was public. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth, that's a very, very large tree, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoken to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. The thing is, Uh, this passage brings out two really big things that we need to look at when we're talking about the aim of why we need to obey God. The first thing, the aim says our heart is to be towards God. And there is an expectation that we actually fear him. So our heart is to be towards God and we are to fear him. This fear isn't one of like, I'm afraid, I'm cowering in the corner. It's we are to fear and we are to revere him. We are to honor him because he is so mighty and wonderful. Our heart is to be towards him. The second thing is what I started to mention. There is an expectation that they will follow it. So Joshua didn't just say, here is what it is, give it a good go. He put the law prevalently where they would see it on a huge stone right under the terebinth tree that they had to pass every time they went to the sanctuary. He put the law, he wrote the statutes and the rules where everybody could see them. There was an expectation. You should follow these. In the Old Testament, there is always an expectation that they will actually do what the part of the covenant they were called to do They should follow it. God expected them to follow it, and he was going to have a relationship with them. Always an expectation. See, God's call to them was primarily of heart and attitude, and it manifested itself in actions, you know, like being faithful to him. That's where it manifested itself. 
Okay, now jump back with me. So we're going back again to Romans. Romans chapter 6. With that in mind, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul has just argued this great point about grace increasing. As sin increased, grace increased all the more. Grace will always win out over sin. So now he's providing this argument. Shall we say then, are we continuing to sin that grace may abound? By no means. Don't keep sinning your face off, is what he's kind of saying. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were, bar- I'm sorry, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In four verses, Paul has very quickly gone over and answered those four questions. He's talked about who God was. He's talked about what he's done in saving us and bringing us out of sin. And he has declared, you have a new identity. And because you have a new identity, walk in it. You have been given the freedom to have newness of life. In verse 17 and 18, which I read from earlier, verse 17, it talks about how we were once slaves of sin, but that we have become obedient from the heart. Obedient to God from the heart. Does this sound familiar? Paul is looking back at the whole of the Old Testament, not just Joshua, but Joshua calls the people to be faithful to God and says, be faithful in heart. And Paul is calling these Christians to be faithful to God as he has given them the ability to be faithful and live into it and says, honor God with your heart. See, our aim is always imitation. Our aim is to imitate God. Our aim is to be like him. I have over here, I'm not disappearing forever, grabbed something that I will be pointing at frequently. Actually, I'll put that over here. Because this is where we have been all series. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? What do I do? Paul has just flown through this and he keeps keying in, okay, in light of who God is and what is pardon me, what has he done, we have to understand who am I is always rooted there. And because of that, our hearts turn towards God. We respond in faithfulness. Our aim is one of imitation. But why? Why? Last week, we talked about Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. God said that he is going to make them, Adam and Eve, in his image and in his likeness. He has given us in our core this image of God. If you want to say it's kind of like what God made us to be was this, the, the most excellent version of ourself. That's how he made Adam and Eve in this excellent version. Sin entered the world and they, version 2.0 was not as good as 1.0. It was broken. It was busted. And now in Christ, he has created in us the ability to come back 
to what God had meant in us. We'll be starting Ephesians next week here. We'll be doing a seven-week series through the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians, and it's kind of accompanying book in Colossians, they're very similar, talk a lot about this image that God wants to make in us. He wants to bring it about. And so when you hear somebody say, you are to be Christ-like, it's not just this nebulous idea of another way to say perfect. No, really, we are to be like Christ. Christ, he was the image of God, the one that all of humans were supposed to be like that responded faithfully, that lived like we were supposed to. And now in Christ, through the Spirit, we can do it. Why? Why do we want to answer this question of what do I do? Why do I want to live righteously? Because that's the best version of ourself. We are moving ever closer to what God's got for us. And now, how? Talked about the aim of imitation. We talked about the why, him forming us in his image. How do we get there? How do we get there? There are three things that I find important for us as we're talking about how. One, we need to dig deep, dig deep in the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was about to leave this earth, he promised us the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would be given to us. We would have God near us. And when the Holy Spirit came, there were three very important things that he would do. The first thing is he would seal us. So there's two types of seals, and uh, it's talking about it. Uh, There's two types mentioned, one in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, one in 1 Peter 2. Verse 9, and it's more like the ownership, the identification. It's like branding, when people get like brands uh, tatted on their arms, or in a nicer way, when uh, in the olden days, when they would send a letter, they would seal it with a piece of hot wax, and they would put that signet ring on it, and it would essentially say, this is from the king, or this is from this person. It carries their authority. It, It was identified by a seal, And thus, we in Christ have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, these are mine. They're with me. This is what it is to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. But also, it's like uh, Jesus mentions towards the end of John chapter 10, that uh, those who were given to him in his hand will not fall out. They will not get free. He will not lose anyone that has been given to his hand. It's a safe and secure thing to come to Jesus. If we have been sealed in the Holy Spirit, it is as if the wine bottle has been sealed. You can turn it. You can shake it. No wine is getting out. When we come to Christ, we are secure. We are sealed in him. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He seals us. Beyond that, He reminds us of his word. He brings to mind, as it says in John chapter 14, he brings to mind all the things that he has commanded. We know where we're supposed to go. We know what we're supposed to do because in those moments, the spirit brings them to mind. He says, this is where you should be going. This is what you should be doing. And the best part is, this is his word to us. If we are in God's word constantly, and if we are constantly meditating on this and thinking it, the Spirit will bring it to mind. He will bring to mind the things that you are reading. And he'll say, now, remember that? And here's the best part. He doesn't just say, here's a fact, 
Remember it. Here's the third thing. The Spirit empowers us. He gives us the strength to actually live this out. It's not a matter of facts. Many of us in this room, if we've grown up in the church, we know the facts. The facts aren't the issue. The facts aren't the issue. It is the strength that the Spirit gives us to actually carry out what we should do, what we know we should do. And the Spirit gives us the strength to make the hard choice and to live in Him, to live faithfully. The role of the Holy Spirit cannot be oversold. He is the one that makes our new life in Christ possible. Okay, if the Holy Spirit is the first step in how, what's the second step? So nearly four years ago, I got to hear a message by a gentleman by the name of Jeff Vanderstelt. He is a pastor and writer, a church planter up in um, Seattle area, uh, and He actually has a book coming out on this very topic due out early next year. And he spoke on something called gospel fluency. Gospel fluency. So if if someone is fluent in a language, they are able to hear a language. They are able to understand without having to sit down and think and say, okay, this is what this means in my language and this word holds this in this context and I think I should say this. When somebody is fluent in a language, they don't have to do that process. Vanderstelt talked about the gospel, how we as Christians have the opportunity through the Spirit to be fluent in the gospel so that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is not a fact that we are referencing, but in fact is something that God is using in an active way in every part of our life so that in him we can be faithful. So this is why I brought out this board. We've been talking this whole series. Each week we've answered one of these four questions. The thing is, we can actually use all four of these questions to figure out how we should be living every day in an active manner. Now, think about something in your life that you know it's an emotion or an action that you do frequently that you know doesn't line up with God. You know it is not imitating God. Okay, think about it. Okay, I'm going to go through two of mine that are the ones that trip me up most frequently. It's fear and it's anger. Fear and anger. These are the things that when I am not walking like Christ, these are the things that trip me up. So what we'll do is we'll actually utilize these four questions and you start at the end. What do I do? Well, what's my response? When I am captured by fear, that is my response. What am I doing? What's my response? It's fear. Well, if I am being dominated by fear, what does that mean about what I think I am? who I think I am. Well, if I'm dominated by fear, frankly, sometimes it feels like I'm alone. I feel like I'm alone. I feel like I'm in the middle of a battle and I've been sent out to the front line and all my friends have backed away and it's now up to me to fight. I feel afraid. I feel dominated by fear and I feel that I have essentially been left alone to fend for myself. 
well, what has God done? If I believe that I am alone and that I have to fend for myself, that I feel that it is all on me now, what, I th- what do I think about what Jesus did on the cross? What do I think about what he did on the cross? Well, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. What Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough to actually deal with me and my issue right here. Jesus' work wasn't strong enough for me. Well, if I think that Jesus' work wasn't strong enough, what do I think about who God is? Well, God's not strong. God's not strong. He's not strong enough. He wasn't big enough to actually help me in my moment and my fear that is capturing me. I get to have this fear and just hold on to it. I'm in control. This is what I've got, my fear. This is how I'm responding. Who's God in that moment? I don't need him because frankly, he's already failed me. Okay, we'll let everybody just sit in the awfulness of that thought. Okay, jump to another one. What's my other fear or my other issue? Anger. What, how am I responding to issues in my life? I get angry. Say like the air conditioning stopped working after spending too many hours this week on the phone talking to people about it. But aside from that, responding in anger. If I am responding in anger, what do I actually think about who I am? Well, I'm the one who gets to be in control. I get to respond in anger because I'm not getting my way. I'm not getting my way and I have a right to be angry. I am fine in my anger. Just leave me alone. If I think I am in control, if I actually think that I am in control, what do I think about what Jesus did on the cross? Well, I don't need it, frankly. Because what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough to actually solve my issue right now. Yes, it solved that whole sin problem and death, but I got other issues. I've got other issues. And frankly, it seems that Jesus just doesn't care. And I'm going to get angry about it because I'm not getting my way. If I think Jesus doesn't care, what do I think about God? I think he's distant. I don't think he has full control because if he did, he would have my back. And he doesn't. My anger is justified. Here's the thing. We all might say we believe in God. We all might say we believe he is a good and loving father. What do our actions say? See, there's a very big difference between functional faith, what my actions say I believe, and confessional faith, what I say I believe. As we grow in Christ, God is narrowing this gap, as Tim Chester says in the book, You Can Change. Sanctification, God making us like him and holy, he's, he's narrowing that gap between confessional faith and functional faith. So how is this helpful? Okay, we figure out how you are feeling in the moment. Again, for me, fear, anger. And you start there and you start asking yourself, I actually am reacting this way. I, am, I feel like I am just captured by anger. Okay. If you're captured by anger, walk back through this. What do I believe about who I am? What do I believe about what he's done? And what is that saying about who I think God is? 
if you are like me and you get back to basically the what has he done and you're talking about how Jesus' work on the cross was a failure, which you know it isn't, and you start talking about how awful God is, which you know he's not, you get there and you start to just feel awful for even thinking those things. And you're like, okay, God, that's not who you are. Good. So who is God? Well, God's not out of control. In fact, God is in control. He is over all. He is supreme. He is in control. He is God, and he is a good father. He has my best interest in mind. Okay? So what has he done? Out of his love and his care for me as a good father, he has sent his son to die for me. Because God has my best interest in mind, what Jesus did has solved all of my problems, all of the issues. Jesus has taken care of it. Well, who am I? I am loved. He thought of me as he went to the cross. The cross covered, it was sufficient. It was sufficient for me. And who am I in him? Well, I am free. I am empowered by the Spirit to live the life that he wants me to live. So how should I be responding? It shouldn't be in fear. And in fact, the opposite of fear is trust. I trust God in that moment because he is complete. He is strong. And he is able to deal with whatever comes in my path. I turn to him in that moment to be my savior. For many, for many, we hear the good news about Jesus and we think that's all we needed just to get to be a Christian. So we move, this is funny, I told Ty to edit this out and now I'm using it. So this over here is the non-Christian place and this is those of us who are Christians. Over here, we talk about the good news. The big word is evangelism. We think, okay, what people who don't know Jesus need is evangelism and then once we become Christians, we start following Christ We need his example of how to live. And we say, okay, I needed evangelism to come to Christ, but now that I am in Christ, I need to be discipled. I need to know how to follow him. And we have a really big line here. The truth of the matter is, since when did we stop needing the good news? Since when does Jesus' good news and his freedom not matter to us anymore? I need that good news today. I need the good news that Jesus is my everything, not to just get me from hell to heaven, but I need him to get me from this moment to the next. He is our everything. And in the spirit, we are reminded that Jesus doesn't give us some solutions to our problems. He is the answer every day in everything. We went through this series talking about about who God is, what he has done, who am I, to respond in his gospel. This is all about Jesus. We talk about these covenant questions because all of scripture has been moving to point to Jesus. And now in light of him, we are called to imitate him. We have been redeemed to take people to God to be redeemed. We have been loved so that we can love This is about imitation. Our aim is in him. Our why is rooted in the image of God. And our how is understanding the gospel in real time.
time and responding to who he is and what he has done, looking back at the identity that we have been given anew in Christ and living freely. This is the gospel. This is why we are gathered here every Sunday. And this is why I get up on a Sunday to encourage you to go back to the rest of your week, empowered and full of the Spirit, to be Christ where he has sent you. Bow with me. Lord, you are the one who is moving. You are the one who has moved. This is about you. Jesus, you have given us everything. We have everything we need in you. Lord, let us not look to anything else to satisfy us. Even if we have come to you, we still need you. Spirit, I ask that you move in this place. Spirit, I ask for you to speak to our hearts. In this quiet and in this stillness, Spirit, where are we ignoring you? Spirit, where have we been actively rejecting the gospel? Speak to us, Lord. Be it fear, is it anger? Is it hate? Is it discontent? What is it in us, Lord, that you want to make yours, you want to make new, and you want us to to embody your character, to imitate you instead and live differently? Bring that to our minds, Lord. And then, Jesus, let us look to you as the one who has accomplished everything. We aren't earning your favor. You've given us your favor. We live in light of who you are and what you've done for us. Jesus, you have set us free. Let us rest in that freedom. In your name we pray. Amen.